0: New Books in Sports is part of the New Books Network. Visit newbooksnetwork.com for more podcast interviews with authors working in a range of subjects. This podcast comes to you in affiliation with the North American Society for Sport History, promoting the academic study and research of sport around the world. Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. We had our first snowfall in my neighborhood this past weekend. So as an antidote against the looming cold and gray of winter, we look this week at that most summary of sports, surfing. My guests are historians Peter Westwick and Peter Nuschel, Both are natives of Santa Barbara, California, and lifelong surfers. Since 2008, they have taught a popular course at UC Santa Barbara on the history of the sport. But far more than an account of the sport's great figures or its influence on popular culture, Peter and Peter's course used surfing as a window to examine the changing environment of the world's beaches and the ways in which technological innovations have impacted the sport. Their teaching and subsequent research resulted in the book, The World in the Curl, An Unconventional History of Surfing, published in 2013 by Crown. This is a wide-reaching work of sports history. The book looks at the colorful figures in the history of surfing and surfing culture from Hawaii to Southern California and Australia. But it also looks at the broad array of developments that have been integral to the sport, from the ways that military research led to the invention of today's surfboards and wetsuits, to the role of surfers in launching the drug trade into California, down to the ways that property developers have altered the world's great surfing beaches and even the waves that come into those beaches. If you've ever paddled into the waves on a board, or if you have interest in the history of the environment, science and technology, or post-war youth culture, You will enjoy Peter and Peter's book. Here is our interview. Peter Westwick, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thanks. Thanks for having us. And Peter Neuschel, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thank you for having us. So thank you, gentlemen, both for coming on the podcast. And uh, I'll ask you both uh, to first say a few words about yourselves. Uh, You're both historians. You're both surfers. So, can you tell us a bit more about your backgrounds in both of these areas and and what led you to uh, to put these interests together?
1: Well, uh, we both come from the same academic field, history of science um, and we met first through that kind of academic world uh, through conferences and we actually both had a postdoc at Caltech. Uh, Peter was at Caltech a few years before me in the same postdoc so we kind of knew each other through history of science and I found out that uh, Peter's from Santa Barbara, uh, and I was from Santa Barbara also. So we had this shared background, and I found out that uh, Peter initially had a Boston Whaler, which is a great boat to get you up to Hollister Ranch, which is this place that you can really only surf, um, get access to by boat, to the surf spots. So we started surfing up there together and then started talking about our mutual interests, and that eventually led to the book.
2: I should add, we, we both grew up in Santa Barbara. I'm a little older than Peter. I think I'm the same age as his older sister. And I live a little to the north of him in Goleta, and he lives in Santa Barbara. And when we looked at, the, we have a chapter on localism in the book where we look at, you know, how surfers kind of glom on to certain areas that they surf in. And it was very odd because he surfs in certain places down in Santa Barbara, and I surf in places out in Goleta. So we have a kind of a cultural split just in within our, our own town <laughs> that kind of came up.
1: Peter,
0: you mentioned uh, your section on localism, and in that section you have a, an anecdote. It's, it's seemingly kind of a uh, uh, hypothetical story about a surfer driving along the coast, sees, uh, sees this great area, no one's there, he goes out, he paddles out, uh, rides a few waves, and then some of the locals come out and make it clear that, uh, that he should get out of there. And I, and I took it that that was something that uh, perhaps both of you, one of you, has experienced directly.
2: Yes, I think I think a lot of surfers have, have had that experience. You know, it's a you arrive at a break that you don't normally surf. It may be in a country you've never surfed in before and you don't really know the culture of that break. And our book is, as you mentioned earlier, it's it's a world history. And so we we looked at particular, for example, at, at Australia, we looked at this documentary on the on Marubra and the Bra Boys. And we actually have a colleague who lives in Marubra and. I went to Maroubra, went surfing in Maroubra, did research in the library at Maroubra, tried to understand, you know, what looked like a real spike in localism in Australia. But, yeah, that is definitely a part of the culture of surfing that uh, certainly someone that's new to it will experience. And it can be quite upsetting. You know, you see, a, say you go to Lunata Bay and you go, that's a fantastic wave. I'm going to go down there and catch some of those waves. You, you arrive, you go out, you're threatened by people. And which ruins your experience even though they're not catching the waves and then you maybe hike back up and your tires are flat yeah. so that can be part of a of the un, an unpleasant darker side to the culture of surfing and we i think we address that fairly well in that chapter at least half of the chapter we look at travel and we look at uh localism at the same time yeah.
1: Yeah. one of the things we like to do in that chapter um and actually throughout the book is Kind of play with the, um, the image of surfing. I mean, the reason we focus on localism is it really kind of runs counter to a lot of the public image of surfing. Is, oh, it's just this bunch of laid-back people. Yeah. They're hanging out on the beach. It's all super casual and groovy. And, but then you have these, uh, you know, media images of surfers beating each other up on the beach, <laughs> which is not exactly the image of these casual laid-back guys just hanging out and having fun. So, um, And that's one of the reasons why the media loves to seize on these images of surfing and surfing gangs and uh, this kind of overblown uh, media coverage sometimes because it runs so counter to the public image. So that's one of the things we try to get at is these kind of um, almost contradictory public images um, that the public receives about surfers and surf culture.
0: So to move from localism to the more global scope, you, uh, you make the case at the book's beginning and also at the end for the importance of surfing in in world sport and thus the importance of a history of of world surfing so uh can you give us a sense to start of the of the popularity and the and the scope of surfing today
1: well the statistics on it are a little bit fuzzy and we kind of arrived at a happy medium between the there's several extremes out there ranging from 5 million surfers worldwide to 35 or 40 million we kind of arrived at a ballpark number of around 20 million surfers worldwide which is a pretty substantial uh population of surfers um and it's really spread from you know we go into quite a bit of detail about how surfing originated in hawaii or modern surfing at least uh came out of hawaii but then spread very quickly to california australia south africa and now there's thriving surf communities and surf culture uh, all over the world um in some you know places like japan brazil Um, but also the Mediterranean coast, Israel, Bulgaria, Iceland, um, Ireland, uh, Great Britain. So some uh, places you might not really expect uh, to find surf communities, Morocco. um, So it's really become a global sport. It's a global industry. It's, um, I think, about a $10 billion industry now, billion with a B. Um, And there are billion-dollar corporations like Quicksilver and Billabong, Uh, basically multinational corporations with divisions in Europe, South America, Africa, Australia, uh, East Asia, all over the landscape. So it's really become a global sport and a global uh, kind of commercial phenomenon, certainly a global cultural phenomenon because you see ads for surfing uh, all over the landscape, whether you're at Times Square or Paris and Berlin.
0: Well, let's get into the book. Uh, You begin the book in Hawaii, and uh, you point out that – You know, there are probably people who are riding waves uh, throughout the world in in different cultures. But you you make the case that Hawaii is the starting point of, of modern surfing. And you do look back at the history of Hawaii before their encounter with the English and Americans. And you describe surfing as a major part of indigenous Hawaiian culture. So can you talk about that, please?
2: You're right. There are, as historians like to do, everyone's always looking for another example of surfing somewhere else, whether it's in Latin America, riding a canoe and surfing waves, or looking at various art depictions by artists of people riding surfboards elsewhere other than Hawaii. But we we believe that not only is Hawaii the you know sort of the cradle of what surfing is today, stand up surfing, um, but we focus in particular on Waikiki and the history of Waikiki as sort of a uh... you know today then forever assuming global warming doesn't wipe out the reefs that that will be the cradle of surfing and uh... if you we spent a lot of time to go back to waikiki numerous times in the chapter or in the various chapters because that uh, if you look at the history of waikiki you can kind of understand why it is that uh, the hawaiians were able to have the time the leisure time uh... and the and the physical ability uh... this required a, a huge amount of athleticism? I know you we're focusing on sport. I mean, these are some of the one of the most magnificent aquatic peoples in the history of the world. But if you look at the history of Waikiki, you arrive there, you go surfing there today. Uh, there's a Malawai canal that it's behind all of the hotels, and that has gathered all the water that used to run down. There were three major streams that would run through Waikiki, and uh, those in the past now they're channeled out into the ocean. But, in the past, those fed a vast wetland, and that wetland was a source of food for Hawaiians because they did they they farmed fish in that wetland and uh, This is of course, a major source of protein and so one asks how is it that uh, an indigenous people are able to have the, the leisure time the the ability to when the you know the, the flag goes up at the at the uh, at the temple on on Head that says that the <clears throat> The waves are big, and it's time to go surfing. How is it that you're able to do that if you're scrabbling uh, to make a, to, to basically feed oneself? And the Hawaiians had food on the hoof in these in these fish farms, literally that were at one time at at Waikiki, and were able to uh, uh, you know go out and, and and surf. Now they're also an ocean-going people, or people that. Uh, uh, are very familiar with the aquatic environment. And we looked in particular at some of the games that they would play. Games such as charging out into the water and having a battle. And the person who's able to physically remove themselves from that and get back onto the beach, uh, wins or, you know, uh, holding your breath. How long can you hold your breath? Uh, these are people that, these are people that were amazing, uh, athletes in the water. And you look at the size of some of the boards that they rode. And the weight of those boards, and you picture yourself paddling those out through uh, some heavy shore pound, that required a, a, you know, a huge amount of physical strength. So these are people who have uh, an economy that will sustain leisure, that have protein available, that uh, have a culture of, of familiarity with the ocean that is, that is so evident in song and in, in, in their history. Uh, So we try to bring that out. But we do a lot of we focus a lot on Waikiki because that when one arrives in Hawaii is usually when you land in Oahu. That's the first place you're going to go. That's where the major hotels are. And to this day, that's where there are fabulous waves.
0: And you talk about
2: Hawaii as well
0: as uh, really ideally situated in terms of geography within the Pacific Ocean to be the to be the cradle of surfing.
2: Yeah, you're that you basically you're looking at islands that are exposed to, to every major swell that comes through. And in, in Hawaii, for example, if you go in the summer, uh, chances are, hopefully, you're going to at least when we did our research, there was a wonderful south swell, and so we surfed Waikiki and we surfed all the breaks on the south shore. Uh, some of these require a lot of paddling to get out to. Uh, they're all all known breaks and so on. Then if you go in the winter, uh, starting we've already had one swell already on the North Shore, but you're going to get that's when you're gonna get these spectacularly big waves in places like Waimea or in Ahuke Beach Park or Sunset Point, uh, which are really the uh the beginnings of uh, some of the, the, the finest professional competitions. You can kind of trace professional surfing by moving around the island of Hawaii. You could look Waikiki like or you go to Makaha and then you go further around to the North Shore and uh uh so this is kind of the emergence of uh uh, I mean, Hawaii is so critical because of its exposure uh, to these to these wonderful swells uh, and the challenge of those breaks, and also the accessibility. If you want to take a picture of somebody riding a very hollow wave, uh, the lighting at a place like Pipeline is absolutely perfect, and you can sit on the sand and feel actually feel the water just shake it uh, uh, as you sit as it's in front of you. And so, Hawaii is the, it's the birthplace, the showplace for surfing. And a lot of that lies in its exposure.
1: And when, I mean, the exposure almost by definition, any people that can reach the Hawaiian Islands, it's one of the most isolated places on the planet. So any people that can populate the Hawaiian Islands and settle them, by definition, have to be able to cross thousands of miles of open ocean. So you have to be unbelievably uh, tuned in to the oceanic environment just to reach the Hawaiian Islands. So the Polynesian settlers who got there it's almost like a self-selecting group of people who have to be amazing water people, who have to be in tune with the ocean, and be amazing sailors, and also expert swimmers. So the people who uh, first settled the Hawaiian islands were, by enough definition, you know, amazing water people, and they expressed that then in the subsequent centuries in their culture, and they built a culture around surfing. Uh, the the religion was tied into surfing, politics. Uh, the chiefs expressed a lot of their power through surfing. Uh, gender roles: uh, women surfed as much as men did, so uh, they really built their entire culture around surfing. And this was because they were a water people. You conclude your section on
0: Hawaii though by saying that that at the time of the island's annexation to the United States, so in the in the late 1800s, uh, surfing was really dying by that point. So, so why was that the case, and and what brought about the revival of surfing in the in the early 1900s? You know, one of the
1: things we try to do throughout the book is, you know, as historians always try to say, why did this happen at this particular place in time? Uh, so for early Hawaii, before the arrival of Captain Cook, why did surfing thrive so much? And it was especially, you know, the, the geography encouraged it, uh, the culture encouraged it, the, the the physical lifestyles of the people encouraged it, and especially the leisure time encouraged it. Um, what happened after the arrival of Cook uh, and uh, the Westerners, uh, there were a series of events. A lot of people have focused on the arrival of the missionaries, and they said, they say that the missionaries arrived around 1820, uh, a few decades after Captain Cook, and they quickly stamped out surfing because they thought it was this heathen activity that did not uh, comport with Western religion. Uh, we looked at that uh, in quite a bit of detail and decided that that's basically kind of a myth, uh, this, the, the idea that missionaries stamped out surfing because they thought it was uh, heathen activity. Um, actually, a lot of the missionaries thought that surfing was a healthy outdoor sport uh, and that it was something to be emulated and not stamped out. Uh, we look at several other factors. One is the transformation of the Hawaiian economy um, from this fish farming and these uh, amazing supplies of food and stuff. Instead of having all this leisure time to go fish, Hawaiians were enlisted in the sandalwood and the whaling and the sugar industries, and they just didn't have time to surf anymore. But the main reason was, well, a secondary reason is the environment. Um, And throughout the book, we really look at the effects of the environment and environmental pollution. Uh, By the mid-19th century, people were calling Honolulu Harbor the cesspool of the Pacific. Um, Probably the main reason, uh, actually no doubt the main reason, is the demographic collapse of the Hawaiian people because of the introduction of Western diseases uh, with the arrival of Captain Cook. And because the Hawaiian islands were so isolated, they'd had no exposure to any of these diseases when Captain Cook arrived. So they had no antibodies build up, and they were just unbelievably susceptible, and they just dropped once all these Western diseases, smallpox, typhus, venereal disease, and the rest. Uh, They just decimated the Hawaiian people. It was an unbelievable, almost unprecedented demographic collapse. Uh, So it wasn't that the Hawaiians stopped surfing because they didn't like it or because the Westerners didn't like it. It was because there were no Hawaiians almost left alive to ride waves. There were so few Hawaiians left that it looked like surfing had died out when it was just the fact that the Hawaiian people were dying out.
0: So who is it then that brings uh, uh, the revival of surfing then in, in Hawaii in the, in the early 1900s? Uh,
1: well, the revival is comes from two factors. Uh, one is led by Native Hawaiians themselves. There's a few Hawaiians who were left alive uh, after this unbelievable demographic collapse. Um, And they are desperately clinging to their native culture. And um, there's a few in particular who are still riding Waikiki uh, around the turn of the century, around 1900. Uh, One gentleman named George Freeth does a lot to popularize or repopularize surfing off of Waikiki. So part of it is from native Hawaiians kind of clinging to or trying to uh, revive some of their native culture. Um, and then the other strand is from these new arrivals, what they call haoles, uh in Hawaii, which are basically white settlers. Uh, and one of the things that occurs around the turn of the century is um, these Hawaiian uh, elites turn to the tourist economy uh, to replace the sugar economy. The shur- sugar economy kind of faltered in the 1890s, so they're looking for a real replacement, a new business model, so to speak. And they seize on tourism. And this is part of, uh, and Peter Neutral can go into more detail about this, but they actually said about you know Waikiki around 1900 was no tourist paradise because it was basically a wetland, um, and you can't build hotels in a wetland. So they had to actually engineer Waikiki uh, to promote the, the tourism industry. But once they had Waikiki engineered, then they seized on surfing as the centerpiece of the Hawaiian beach lifestyle and used it to promote this new tourist industry, um, so that also then contributed to the revival of surfing uh, in the early 20th century.
2: Yeah, if you if you were to pull up a, a Google Earth image of Waikiki today, you can still see where the where the streams once went through the reef. You can actually see evidence of that now. Uh, but that's a, this Waikiki is a completely engineered environment. At one point, they brought sand from the U.S. To, to replenish Waikiki. Just recently, they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to make Waikiki wider. So uh, it, it's a calculated and we cover this throughout the book. Uh, uh, it is a constructed environment. Now, the one thing that remains, I believe, natural about it are, are the waves.
0: And so in the engineering, this is something I'm, I'm interested in, in the engineering of Waikiki, there was always an attempt to maintain the waves, correct?
2: I think there's such a, there's so many waves at Waikiki that uh, there are certainly times when they blew up the reef, blew yeah. up parts of the reef, and, you know, to use it to build up base for hotels uh, or, to you know, help uh, create more concrete for a shopping center and whatnot. But I don't think that, that they've managed to change the waves that much although there are places like magic island uh there are definitely waves that I'm not going to say they didn't eliminate waves there are waves eliminated along Waikiki Yeah 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 uh, the interesting thing though about in the process of eliminating waves sometimes you create waves and so we we cover that not just on uh, on Oahu but look at it elsewhere engineers and coastal engineering quite often uh can can make waves at the same time as taking waves away uh, but in Waikiki the chief concern of the people building hotels is you can't have your hotel undermined so you have to keep some sort of shore protection you have to keep either boulders seawalls groins and especially sand as a buffer between you and the next big swell because you can't have the pink hotel being undermined and falling into the into the water and you need enough sand so people can lie on the beach and you need enough sand so that someone can rent a surfboard and and take a lesson and so, maintaining the the beach for for you know certainly for people concerned with tourism is is absolutely priority one. And that doesn't that's not just in Hawaii; that's worldwide.
1: Yeah, and one of the reasons we called or we subtitled the book an unconventional history of surfing is we we try to bring in some of these new angles like this. Uh, again, this is something that people probably don't associate with surfing uh, is coastal engineering or engineering in general. Uh, but we really try to say that look, if you're talking about the history of surfing in Hawaii. You know, everybody or a lot of people know the name of Duke Ahanemoku. He's probably the most famous surfer of all time and one of the most phenomenal athletes uh, of the 20th century. Um, we like to say that he was Kelly Slater and Michael Phelps rolled into one. He was a phenomenal, you know, world-class, multiple Olympic gold medalist in swimming and also the best surfer by far of his generation. Um, so people associate surfing, the history of surfing, with Duke Ahanemoku. And we, uh, I think... Uh, we have to spend a lot of time talking about Duke because he is crucial to the history of surfing. But then we also talk about people like uh, the Dillingham family. And the Dillingham family is this humongous uh, engineering conglomerate, construction conglomerate uh, in the Hawaiian Islands that has really been fundamental in reshaping the landscape, uh, including the coastal landscape, of the Hawaiian Islands. And you could argue uh, that Dillingham is important to surfing in Hawaii, as somebody like Duke, uh, just in their effect on the physical environment. Uh, so we try to bring in some of these new angles on the history of surfing through people like Dillingham, uh, who don't normally show up in history of the surfing, but we think are absolutely vital if you're looking at the history of this sport uh, over the last 100, 150 years.
0: Yeah, that was something I really enjoyed about the book. And it, late in the book, in one of the later chapters, you have this—you uh, uh, have this line about how surfers themselves haven't really paid attention to to the engineering because typically a surfer is sitting or lying on his board, paddling out, looking outward instead of looking in to see what has changed on on the coastline and uh uh, you mentioned also later in your book that that the corps of engineers the united states corps of engineers which handles these major engineering projects in the united states has probably had a greater influence on surfing than than any surfer or any company or any other any other institution
2: yeah the corps is one of the oldest entities in the united states and one of their responsibilities is is and always has been shore protection you know you're uh you're, if you're in your town, say you're in Santa Barbara, and you go down to the breakwater there, uh, that is a breakwater that was in fact not built by the Army Corps of Engineers. They produced a design which the local community didn't like. It wasn't it didn't wasn't in the place that they wanted it, and it wasn't it wasn't pretty. And so, uh, a very wealthy the Fleischman margarine family uh, put in this breakwater that goes parallel to the coast here in Santa Barbara, and the result is that it cuts off sand, or the the sand, there's not enough, it it wasn't designed so that sand would bypass the downcoast beaches. And so essentially, a new harbor was forming in some of the most uh, expensive real estate in the world, because there was no more sand going past the harbor. And so today, when you arrive at the harbor, there will be a Army Corps of Engineers dredge there that is providing artificial sand bypass. In other words, it's pumping the sand that's building up behind this visually pleasing breakwater that is dysfunctional so that Montecito doesn't become a bay down coast from Santa Barbara Harbor. And so that, that's sort of an example of here, as I'm sitting here, that the, that the, of how the Army Corps affects the marine environment and affects our coastline. In fact, all of the flood control for Santa Barbara County was done by the Army Corps of Engineers. So whenever we have a major rainfall, all of the channels, all of the, the runoff, that's all part of a master plan. Uh, that is supposed to get the water away from our communities and keep from flooding our communities and out into the ocean. So this is part of the has been part of this agency's or this group's mission for uh, hundreds of years. And so it uh, it's something though that people have absolutely no idea what the Army Corps of Engineers is. They have absolutely no idea, uh, you know, that they essentially made Newport Beach and or that they created all these harbors. Because here in California, every time you make a harbor, it cuts off down coast sand flow. And so uh, you then have to engineer means for uh, building up the downcoast beach or, you know, each time you you do something to the coast, it has an impact downcoast or upcoast that will affect some very expensive real estate and that then requires protection. And so the Corps works with local communities to wrestle with these problems anywhere. New Orleans, for example, we all know the story of New Orleans. It's essentially... You can stay at a downtown hotel in New Orleans, and about 20 feet above your head is the Mississippi River. <laughs> it's it's really bizarre. Uh, it's an artificial environment.
1: Again, this kind of goes back to some of these contradictions we see in the image of surfing. You know, most people think of surfing as, as this natural sport. You're out there communing with nature. You're literally immersed in the oceanic environment. And you're out there, and there's dolphins and pelicans, and you're watching the sunset, and it's all... It's this communion with nature is how a lot of people portray it. But in reality, when you think about it, you know, they are part of this uh, amazingly engineered landscape. Uh, And a lot of the landscape is, in fact, artificial. Uh, And a lot of that engineering is to allow all these millions of people to live near the coast. You know, the the human populations are concentrating more and more along coastlines. But in order to have all these people living along coastlines, a lot of that requires uh, human intervention with the environment and engineering, flood control, harbors, and the rest of it. So we really try to bring out some of these tensions between these images of surfing as this natural pursuit versus all this engineering and technology and artifice that uh, enables them to pursue this sport. And a lot of the water, which you write about, is, is full of human waste, Oh, yeah. (laughs) This is another one of the uh, less appealing aspects of surfing that we try to bring uh, at least to people's attention. Because, again, when you have millions of people concentrating along coastlines, uh, all those millions of people produce a lot of trash and sewage. And all that stuff has to go somewhere. And along coastlines, that stuff goes out of the oceans. And surfers are literally uh, soaking at the boundary or the interface uh, between civilization and the natural environment uh, but because they're at the interface they are the ones um, most immediately impacted by uh, all of this sewage burden and the pollution that comes with uh, human society modern society
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's amazing you ask students in a course well, where what happens when you flush the toilet they have no idea mm-hmm. it just goes someplace where it's not in my house anymore well, surfers are sort of at the cutting edge of that, and it's, it's kind of it's a little bit disconcerting, but I think it's important because there are so many surfers that we have awareness of, of this, these sorts of, these are the basics. You need to be aware of the basics, and, uh, and then I think when the town decides whether or not they want to have secondary or tertiary treatment of sewage, you have, a more, you have more information at hand as to why you might want that to happen.
1: And most, I mean, some of the biggest surfing populations in the world are in places like New York, uh, Los Angeles, San Diego, Sydney, Australia, um, where you basically would not be able to surf uh, if there hadn't been the development of sewage treatment systems over the last century. Or you can turn that around and say that actually it was the importance of coastal recreation to places like Los Angeles and San Diego and Orange County and Sydney, Australia – That really drove the development of sewage treatment systems because even back in the 1930s, they were complaining uh, about uh, beach closures because of sewage in places like Long Beach. The L.A. River uh, outflows at Long Beach, and they were having to close down the beach in the 1930s because there was so much sewage uh, in the water that the L.A. River was just carrying down. The L.A. River was basically the sewage disposal system for L.A. Uh, And the importance of coastal reaction coastal recreation and real estate really drove uh, the demand that, you know, cleaned up this ocean environment because we want to be able to swim in the ocean uh, out here. And surfers wouldn't be able to surf today if that movement hadn't uh, gained some traction and uh, led to the development or in Honolulu for the same reason. They had – they started realizing 50 years ago that, look, Waikiki is based on – Uh, people coming to the beach and playing in the water Uh, and we have these sewage outfalls at other end of Waikiki beach and if we don't do something about this sewage uh, we're going to lose the cash cow that is the Waikiki tourist industry because people aren't going to pay thousands of dollars to come to Waikiki and watch uh, big rafts of sewage wafting by at Waikiki. Peter
0: Westwick you mentioned earlier uh one of the most important, probably the most important surfer of the 20th century, Duke Kahanamuku. And uh, so I'll ask, uh, ask you to explain why, why is he such a significant figure. In fact, he plays throughout, uh, throughout your book.
1: Yeah, he was really crucial in the revival in the early 20th century uh, in kind of popularizing surfing and became really the public face of surfing. And this brings up another uh, great issue that we haven't really talked about yet, but one of the reasons for the revival of surfing in the early 20th century, and that is swimming. Uh, I mean, we're on a sports website, and surfing has been very intimately involved or tied into swimming uh, from its inception uh, for the very basic reason that you can't surf if you can't swim. Uh, And one of the reasons why surfing could catch on around 1900 uh, is because uh, people can swim. Uh, So we go in and we look at the development of swimming uh, over the course of the 1800s and the construction of public swimming pools and swim lessons available through things like the YMCA, um, and basically teaching the American public how to swim so that when they go on vacation to Hawaii, then they can go out and go out and surf and take a surfboard out and not drown. Uh, so that's one of the reasons surfing was, or swimming was important to surfing. The other reason is that a lot of the really early popularizers, people like Duke Honimoku, were competitive swimmers, uh, first and foremost, uh, and served for secondary. So Duke was an amazing uh, world class uh, swimmer. Uh, and that's how he came to public attention was setting world records. Is this unknown teenager uh, out of Hawaii who started setting world records uh, and then winning Olympic gold medals and then going on these swimming exhibitions around the world? And when he'd go on these exhibitions, uh, oftentimes in Sydney, Australia, uh, he was there for a swimming tour. He gave a swimming exhibition um, and then uh, in between swimming tours, went out, carved a board out of the uh, tree down there. Uh, Sugar pine and went out and surfed um, and basically planted surfing um, in Australia. So, surf uh, swimming is really crucial to the development of surfing. And then, over the course of the 20th century, more Americans learn how to swim, more pools are built. In the Great Depression, the federal government is building uh, urban swimming pools. Uh, So, more and more people learn how to swim, and more and more people then can surf.
2: Yeah, I, I think a lot of, for example, If you were to ask the Duke, if we had the Duke with us today and said, what is the defining moment in your career, in your life? And I think he would say winning a gold medal in Antwerp in 1920. He was the fastest human being in the world in the water. People in Australia were there. They came out, thousands of people would come out to watch the Duke swim. I mean, this is is essential. This is Michael Phelps. Okay. Now, yes, surfing is a big part of his life as well. But he went to great lengths to retain his amateur status. Uh, and there was money on the table that he left because he wished to remain an amateur. And as we know, early in the Olympic, in Olympic history, you could not take money. If you, if you jeopardized your amateur status, you would never swim in the Olympics again. There was a lot. When you talk about Duke, there's a lot about swimming there. The Hui Nalu Club, the Club of the Waves, was a swim club. It was created for him to swim. Uh, he swam all over the world. And, uh, so a big part of the history of surfing is connected and it has to be to the history of swimming. And that definitely comes out in our book.
0: Well, let's jump ahead a, a few decades and I want to talk about surfing in, in California in, in the sixties and seventies. And, and you talk about, uh, post-war California and how surfing was such an integral part of the social and, and cultural history of the, the Southern California boom in the post-war, post-war period. You talk about surfing films, you talk about the Beach Boys and surfing music, uh, but you devote uh, more attention to surfing and counterculture, particularly surfing and drugs in, in the 1960s and into the 1970s. So, Can you, can you talk about surfing and the, and the counterculture, the youth culture uh, in the 60s?
1: Yeah, I mean, this again is one of these tensions in the image of surfing. Um, if you look at surfing as it's presented, say, in Gidget or in Beach Blanket Bingo, uh, you know, with Frankie and Annette on the beach in Malibu or the Beach Boys, you know, they're out there in their, you know, button down shirts. It's this very kind of clean, home, healthy image, very middle class, mainstream image of surfing as this, you know, healthy outdoor sport. In fact, that's I think a direct quote from Gidget, when she comes home and tells her dad that she wants to take up surfing. He says, "Oh, I don't mind. My daughter enjoys the pleasures of a nice outdoor sport." Uh, so there's this kind of middle class image of surfing in the '50s and '60s. This kind of fathers knows best <laughs> uh, very much uh, aligns with that. But then there's this counter image of surfing. Um, of surfing as this kind of rebellious, subversive, outlawed counterculture. Uh, You know, it's just a bunch of bums down on the beach drinking beer and blowing off work and going out to catch some waves. Uh, And the Kahuna, you know, the Gidget is a great uh, movie for this because it really shows off these two competing images. You have the Moondoggy, who's the clean-cut frat boy, and then you have Kahuna, who's living on a shack at Malibu uh, without a job, just a total surf bum. So what happens in the 60s is the kind of surf um, counterculture image kind of takes precedence uh, or finally passes uh, the kind of clean, wholesome image of surfing. So surfing now becomes this subversive, rebellious counterculture, and that becomes the main identity of surfing. Uh, And one of the reasons that happens um, is uh, the association with drugs in the 60s. And it's not just that surfers were taking drugs, but they actually, if you look into the story, there's a really fascinating story here about surf, how surfers almost, uh, not single-handedly, but were, made crucial contributions to the drug culture itself uh, and the drug trade. Uh, this network of Laguna Beach surfers, uh, they started smuggling drugs. They were off on these surf trips to places like Baja, Mexico, and then later on to Southeast Asia. And they realized that these places they were visiting uh, were great sources of drugs, uh, first marijuana and hash, um, later on some harder drugs. But then they also realized that surfboards provided excellent smuggling tools. They started making hollow surfboards, filling up these hollow boards with drugs, and then you know driving back over the border uh, with these hollow surfboards. They'd get back to Laguna Beach, cut the boards open, start pulling out the bags of pot or hash, and then they'd sell out and make a fortune. Uh, and pretty soon they did have a smuggling ring worth about $250 million. And the feds uh, pretty quickly realized that this was the biggest smuggling ring in the United States, uh, as they put it, in the history of uh, organized drug smuggling. And one of the reasons it took the feds so long to catch on was because they could not believe that these surfers had their act together enough to actually pull off something as complicated as they did this $250 million uh, smuggling ring, which basically by the late 60s, early 70s had global reach. Afghanistan, Pakistan, Morocco, Southeast Asia, Central America, basically around the world, and these surfers were sitting at the center of it. Um, so this, this group of uh, Laguna Beach surfers, Really, uh, almost enabled the entire '60s drug culture by creating this huge network that was originally based on their surf travels.
2: Yeah, we started off talking about localism and and how that's that's almost always evident in surf films. Well, thematically, especially recently, drugs are always evident. There's some drugs are connected to surfing in some way or another, and uh, we we trace that. uh, I think looking in the '60s chapter, but that. Sadly, that continues to be a problem today. Yeah. I mean, there are not, not too many professional sports where uh, there could be, a, you know, a drug-related drug problem with an, a world champion. And uh, that, well, sadly, that does happen, but uh, that is, that's an issue with surfing.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you look at, the, look at the early 1970s, two of the best surfers in the world, uh, the ones who were winning the most contests, Michael Peterson and Jeff Heckman, were heroin addicts. And as we say in the book, try to think of another sport, another major sport, where probably the two top competitors are smack addicts. And it really kind of boggles the mind. But in surfing, that is – it not only happens and continues to happen, but um, it's almost uh, (laughs) – you know, it's almost part of the surfing culture. It's so accepted that this is almost seen as part of surfing's countercultural credibility in some respects. Mm Gentlemen, we're almost out of time, and I
0: want to ask. We've been talking about surfing in California. We've been talking about surfing in in Hawaii. And uh, to close, though, I want to ask about surfing in Australia. You do uh, uh, devote a good part of a chapter uh, to uh, surfing in Australia. And uh, and you talk about how different the the picture of the surfer is in Australian culture is from the, the picture of the surfer in Californian culture. So, so can you talk about uh, uh, the image of the surfer in Australia?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the, the surfing, the surf culture in Australia is uh, a bit different from Southern California um, in that it derives a lot from the lifeguarding culture and life-saving culture. And the whole life-saving movement in Australia goes back, you know, over, over a century to the kind of Victorian period and this idea of, well, first of all, preventing people from drowning on the beach, of course, is the first <laughs> uh, first goal of life-saving. But the whole movement in Australia became this thing of, you know, first of all, you're kind of disciplining the environment, you're taming the ocean, um, you're preventing people from drowning in the ocean, you're making the ocean safe for people uh, to swim in. But it became this kind of ultra-competitive, almost uh, militaristic uh, culture of lifesaving, where they have these contests, and they, you know, each club has their uniform and they have their flags and banners, and they have this thing called the march past, where at the start of every competition on the weekends, uh, you know, each club marks, marches down the beach in formation with their uniforms on and their flags. And it's this very kind of quasi-militaristic display uh, of lifeguard culture, uh, and in surfing in Australia, surfing kind of came out of that culture, where they started forming surf clubs and having surf contests. So it's, it's very much more uh, competitive, very much more uh, organized, kind of rigorous uh, approach to surfing, as opposed to the California, you know, the California culture kind of derived a lot from Hawaii. In fact, they called themselves the Coast Howlies. And it was, you know, we're going to build a shack on the beach and we're going to weave palm frond hats and we're going to sit there and we're going to strum our ukuleles on the beach at San Onofre before we paddle out. Whereas in Australia, it's uh, we're going to have a surf contest uh, and we're going to have, you know, team uniforms and we're going to, uh, you know, grade the contest and score them and then total it up. And you have this very cutthroat competitive system that develops uh, by the, you know, late 60s into the 1960s and into the 1970s in Australia uh, There's very kind of competitive environment for surfing, uh, and that then contributes to the growth of pro-surfing and the popularity of pro-surfing in Australia. But the surfer in Australia really becomes, it actually becomes tied in with the whole national identity. You know, as more of the Australian population moves to the coast, to places like Sydney, you know, if you think 100 years ago, what people thought of Australia, they thought of the Bushman. Uh, you know, it's Waltzing Matilda and this guy out there uh, in the bush, out in the outback, whereas now I think the, the main public image of, for Australia is, is a surfer on the beach. Uh, so there's been this transformation over the last 100 years, but it's a very different uh, kind of culture and image um, than you have at least uh, when this first emerged uh, in the 60s and 70s from this kind of countercultural image in California of surf culture. Uh, and in Australia, it was this kind of you know rigorous, uh, very competitive sport Uh, And much more of a sport than, say, the lifestyle. Uh, You know, in in California, surfers tend to think of surfing as either an art or a lifestyle, but not necessarily a sport. It's something to be judged and something to be uh, competed at. Whereas in Australia, uh, from this period, you know, surfing was a sport. And we're going to compete and we're going to have contests and we're going to judge the contests and score them. And individual competition, club competition, team competition, uh, it was very much uh, uh, very much a sport, professional sport um, from the outset.
2: I would add that Australia has had a major contribution uh, from an industry perspective in order to feed this culture of surfing that emerged so quickly, and a, and a part of that, of course, is they have an amazing swim culture there as well. Uh, but companies like Quicksilver, Billabong, Etc. Have have emerged and become enormously powerful uh, and influential worldwide because of the the sort of what Peter Westbrook defined. there as a very uh, you know well defined surf culture.
0: Peter and Peter, to finish up, uh, uh, Peter Nushul, you mentioned earlier your your research, and I put I, I have my my scare quotes up. Your research in in going to Hawaii and surfing on on Waikiki. So I want to ask about this. This uh, project in which you were able to uh, research by surfing. So, how many how many uh, places did you visit in, in the course of researching this book to uh, uh, to try your hand at surfing these different areas? I've
2: been I've been going to Hawaii my whole life. But we did uh, we did visit. You know, we went out to use the Bishop Museum and do this research on sport in Hawaii. And we had a really nice south swell there. Surfed around Waikiki and, and elsewhere around port La- elsewhere around the island. And it was just a wonderful experience, we did that together we had we had been to Hawaii independently, of course. I went to Australia um, and did some research there and I was, visited marubra visited I joined the surf life Saving Club there. anybody can do it <laughs> right there on the beach so and i 'd been to africa i 'd been you know, in the course of our live surfing, uh, we've been all over the world already, but we did we did do some field research, and I think that was important to do, and uh, there are museums, surfing museums around the world that we've looked at, and uh, libraries, and I think that gave some, some depth to the book. We did a number of, of oral histories uh, that I think were important, and we took the tools of the historian, we took the historical method, and kind of applied it to this, and I, you know, I, I think there's some. There is a lot of new information in, in this book that you're not going to see in, in other surf histories, uh, and that part of that is because of the field work that we did.
1: Yeah, and we visited some of the places, places like Caltech, the Caltech archives, and Peter and I both spent quite a bit of time in the Caltech archives for other projects. Um, So we went there and we actually found a lot of uh, really interesting and crucial stuff on the contributions of military R&D, military uh, research and development during World War II to surfing technology um, in World War II uh, through Caltech. Um, But one of the great things about this book and one of the fun things was not only doing research that we're used to uh, in places like Caltech, but then to go, you know, most of my history of science research does not usually take me to Hawaii, unfortunately, <laughs> but this was a great excuse to go over there. I uh, actually find some great stuff in the Bishop museum archives and doing oral histories over there, but you know, before and after uh, in the mornings and then in the evenings going out and surfing. And I think that was also, you know, that was not just uh, goofing around or for fun. I mean, that experience really informed the book. I mean, we closed the book with this little vignette of going out you know, we'd been in the archives that day, and then uh, we go out in the evening. The, sun, the south wall was still running. The sun was setting, and we paddle out at Waikiki. And you start to realize, like, why Waikiki was and remains the cradle of surfing and the epicenter of surfing, because it really is a magical spot. And it gets you back to why the ancient Hawaiians took up this sport 500 years ago and why surfing is so popular today, because you paddle out at Waikiki today, Uh, just as the Hawaiians did 500 years ago. And the water's warm, and the sun is setting, and Diamond Head is kind of over your shoulder. And uh, it's just a magical spot. The waves are great, and you're sitting there out there catching waves and surfing into the beach while the sun is setting, and it's really a magical experience. And it kind of gets you back to this is what it's all about. So you can do all the archival research and all that stuff, and that's important to do as historians. But it's also important to keep in mind, you know, white people do this sport in the first place. And being there on Waikiki and having that experience uh, was a great reminder of that
0: You've been listening to an interview with Peter Westwick and Peter Nuschel about their book, "The World in the Curl: An Unconventional History of Surfing," published by Crown in 2013. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from religion to Russian studies. If you would like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter, at NewBooksSports, or friend us on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash NewBooksAndSports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week.